Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. NCC President Jeffrey Rosen recently traveled to Aspen, Colorado for the Aspen Ideas Festival, where he moderated a panel on the 2018-2019 Supreme Court term and how the court's recent decisions could impact our lives. Jeff was joined by appellate lawyers and former solicitors general, Neil Katyal and Ted Olson, Harvard legal history professor Annette Gordon-Reed, CNN legal analyst Joan Biskupic, and New York Times Magazine staff writer and Yale Law School lecturer Emily Bazelon. They discussed the census citizenship case, the dynamics of the new Roberts Court, and much more. Here's Jeff, live from Aspen. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Supreme Court session. <laughs> we do indeed have a dream team to discuss this hugely significant Supreme Court term. The first where Justice Brett Kavanaugh replaced Justice Neil Gorsuch. The first where Chief Justice John Roberts was not only the center vote, but the swing vote and exercised that power to avoid a dramatic five to four Republican versus Democratic split in the <laughs> census case, but preside join one in the gerrymandering case. This is a remarkable panel. I want to get as much of these cases on the table as possible, so we're going to jump right into it. I'm going to ask them specific questions, and they will help us spread constitutional light. And we must begin with the census and gerrymandering case. Emily, you wrote this uh, extraordinarily illuminating narrative piece about what the effects of allowing the census to be asked, uh, citizenship to be asked on the census would be. But just give us your sense of what uh, Roberts' decision to join the liberals in the, sen- in the uh, census case and the conservatives in the gerrymandering case says about the future of politics in America. A nice small question to start yes. off the morning. <laughs> to start out. I'm going to start for one second by just saying how important the census is. Before I started working on this piece for the Times Magazine, I confess to have taken the census for granted. It's not the most dra- dramatic and sexy part of our system, but it underlines everything. It's our basis of allocating taxpayer dollars across the country. It's how we apportion political power. So there's a huge amount at stake in making sure that the census it is, is as accurate as possible. And all the research the Census Bureau itself did about adding a citizenship question suggested that that would cause less accuracy, an undercount, especially of immigrant communities and people who are networked to them. And that has a ripple effect in cities where there are larger populations of immigrants. It means less money flows to those cities. It means less political power. So Robert's opinion yesterday, the key section of it, which um, found that the government did not give a plausible rationale for adding the citizenship question, the key part of the opinion that, at least for now, will prevent that question from being added, was only joined by the four liberal justices. So you see Roberts here playing this really important role as a check. It's a temporary um, result because Roberts wrote this opinion in a very careful way. Here are all the reasons why what the government did was perfectly legitimate, doesn't violate what's called the enumerations clause, the lines in the Constitution that actually obligate the conducting of a sentence. Here's why it didn't necessarily violate what's called the Administrative Procedures Act. So there's just this one little problem for the government to fix. They have to come up with a reason that's not made up or, frankly, 
essentially a lie um, for deciding to add this question. And the government has been saying that the census forms need to be printed by the end of June that this was extremely urgent. But there's testimony in the record that, in fact, they may have until October. And you may have seen that President Trump tweeted yesterday, I want you to get moving to correct this error. And so we may have what's quite a kind of temporary respite from the addition of the question to the census. And then when I think about Roberts' role overall, you see yesterday, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, in the gerrymandering case, a very political decision takes the federal courts out of preventing extreme partisan gerrymandering in a way that the practical import gives more power to Republicans because they control more state houses in an era in which gerrymandering is becoming more partisan. The news yesterday balances that result with this um, seemingly more centrist or you know, moderate decision in the census case, and yet that may be very temporary. So I think it's important to put a kind of asterisk on what this really means for Chief Justice Roberts' legacy. That is uh, a great intro, and you have told us that the legal holding in the census case was Roberts is joining the liberals to say that the reason was made up and a purely pretextual reason, enforcing the Voting Rights Act, uh, doesn't pass muster. Uh, Annette, you have uh, closely followed uh, not only the gerrymandering case uh, involving partisan gerrymandering, but also racial gerrymandering cases. You've written about the court's approach to race and politics. What does the court's decision to shut the door on partisan gerrymandering cases say about its approach to race? Well, it's sort of in line with the idea that this is a very political decision in ways, and Robert seems, I suggested, not to really buy the idea that history matters in, in law. And certainly racial gerrymandering has been a problem, partisan gerrymandering, which is basically sort of a, in in a way, it's a stalking horse for the same thing. They go together. Uh, It's losing sight of the fact that this will be a situation where you're setting up a potentially minority party to be winners all the time. And so it just, it was disappointing in that way because he doesn't seem to take all of the history, all of those kinds of things into account. That's a powerful claim. And Ted, you famously argued Bush v. Gore, uh, uh, and you... Why do they keep bringing that up? <laughs> because then, like then, 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 because then we follow that up by saying you also argued the marriage equality cases, and you've impressed all of your friends with your deep uh, bipartisan <laughs> commitment to the rule of law. However, Bush v. Gore surprised very many people by interjecting the court into a political area that it hadn't been before, and Annette makes the strong claim that it's hypocritical for the court to police the election uh, results when it comes to presidential elections and undercounts, and when it comes to racial gerrymandering, but not to do the same thing with partisan gerrymandering. And Justice Stevens, retired Justice Stevens, made the same claim. Go ahead. One other thing I I meant to add. It's sort of interesting when you think about the founders and their understanding about what political power was supposed to be about and their disdain for faction, disdain for partisanship. The opinion yesterday sort of suggested America is about parties. It's not about people making a claim individually for the best interests of the people, it's about parties. And so that's another side of it that just strikes me sort of an odd twist. I mean, for people who speak of themselves as originalists and so forth, not that that I'm in that camp, but it's sort of an interesting way of thinking about how Washington and others thought about political parties and the, the rise of faction. And now we're at a point where we're just saying it's all about the party. 
That's a crucial history, and Justice Kagan, in her searing dissent, and by the way, ladies and gentlemen, you can't come to a National Constitution Center Aspen panel without homework. Your homework right now is to read the majority and opinion and dissents in the partisan gerrymandering case, and Justice Kagan's searing dissent quotes the Declaration of Independence, which you've written so powerfully about, and says that this violates the fundamental principle of American government that all sovereign power is in the national people. So, Ted, defend... The court. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Uh, One of the things that the court pointed out in the majority opinion is that uh, it is very difficult for the justices to set standards with respect to the application of political power. The framers of our Constitution put redistricting in the hands of politicians, in the hands of elected officials. They made that decision consciously. The court points out in its opinion that gerrymandering, that is to say, Politicians trying to take advantage of their position to encourage favoritism or, or the best outcome for them. That's what politicians do. It was known at the time of the framers. Um, the court points out that with respect to gerrymandering, the one-person, one-vote decision was based upon a, a, a principle that they that could be understood and could be articulated. The same thing with racial gerrymandering and the 14th Amendment. But political gerrymandering has been a difficult thing for the court for 30 or 40 years. It has come before the court again and again. The the court has been divided 5-4-4-1-4, things like that. And the justices in the majority, which is what the outcome was yesterday, uh, written by the Chief Justice, kept struggling with, well, what standard would we apply to say politics, there's too much politics in political decisions, and where would we draw the line and how would we do it? And the justices were struggling, and I'm, not, I'm trying not to make this into a partisan point, that they, they were basically saying, this is very, very hard to do, and if we're going to change the political structure of how we set districts, for legislative bodies, including Congress and state legislatures, we would need some sort of constitutionally driven standard. We don't find one, so we're going to stay out of it. That's a great uh, defense, and indeed that's exactly what the chief said in his opinion, that uh, the standards are so mushy, they're not judicially administrable, and the courts would look political if they were intervening in elections without standards that could be clearly applied. Neil, uh, you... We have to do our usual full disclosure. Uh, Neil uh, is my brother-in-law, and this is part of our ongoing roadshow. This road is how show. I get invited. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's really tough, to, uh, but uh, we're doing an ongoing roadshow, and this is part of it, and it's called Brothers-in-Law. You had quite a term as usual. You uh, represented the, uh, you argued before the court in the Bladensburg Cross case, which we'll talk about in a moment. You had another important uh, uh, case involving uh, prosecution, and then you uh, represented Speaker Pelosi in the census mm-hmm. case. Um, what, what is your, uh, and you also argued the travel ban case last year, where the court refused to look behind the motives of the law and instead upheld it in its face. In this case, the chief was willing to look behind the motives of the uh, government in the census case and to say they were fake. What explains the difference? Um, so first of all, it's great to be here and great to see so many people actually care about the Supreme Court uh, today, this morning, which is unlike the Democratic debates. Um, and... Uh, <laughs> Uh, I think that um, uh, you know the the way the, that the census case came up. I think the most important thing to understand about it is that the Trump administration came in and said we're adding this citizenship question 
in a testimony by Secretary Wilbur Ross for the sole reason of enforcing the Voting Rights Act. Now, I don't think the Trump administration knows what the Voting Rights Act is. Hasn't brought a single case to enforce the Voting Rights Act. Exactly. So the idea already seemed a little implausible. And then you had this remarkable proceeding in the Southern District of New York presided over by Judge Jesse Furman. And one of the things, I think it's real important about the Supreme Court, but the lower courts are really important. You see it in a case like this. He wrote a 277-page opinion that just demolished the administration. And that's why, I think, to answer your question, it became impossible. I'd like to think the briefs that we wrote and stuff matter, but I think his opinion so thoroughly destroying the rationale for this and saying it had to be motivated by something else led the Chief Justice, this is remarkable language. I don't think this is a small win. I think it's an astounding win. The Chief Justice said that the Trump administration's things uh, rationale was utterly pretextual, conjectural, made up, contrived. To use, that's the word he used. That's a remarkable thing coming from the Supreme Court of the United States uh, accusing a president and his administration of. And I don't think it's just temporary because the Trump administration has come in and said that everything's got to be printed by June 30th. They, in fact, went and bypassed the Court of Appeals entirely. They went straight from Judge Furman to the Supreme Court because they said, the sky is falling. We've got to print this stuff by June 30th. And now, of course, Trump tweets yesterday in absolute derogation of what his lawyers told the Supreme Court. Oh, no, we can wait. No big deal. I don't think they're going to be able to come up with a reason. Um, and the whole thing looks just really fishy. And we know what the reason is why they're doing this, which is to suppress minorities, which is what the Census Bureau itself says. Now, last year, I argued the travel ban case. I have to say, until yesterday, I think I woke up every single day incredibly depressed about the Supreme Court because I thought that was another example in which the administration said, uh, oh, we're doing this because of national security reasons, but they could never actually point to anything. And there's statement after statement from the president basically saying, quote, I think Islam hates us. And the chief justice blew past all that and just said, I'm going to defer to the four corners of what the executive order did. Yesterday, he didn't do that. I think that's an important uh, marker. Um, And I think it suggests that this president has lost his credibility when it comes to the Supreme Court. Joan, you have written a superb new book, The Chief, the definitive biography of Chief Justice Roberts. Tomorrow, same place, uh, 9-10, you and I are going to discuss the chief and his role, so let's not step on all of our best lines, but let us uh, entice the audience by giving them just a glimmer of the thrill that will await them if you show up tomorrow morning <laughs> and tell us, this, as Neil says, this was a big deal for the chief to, uh, to what he did in the census and gerrymandering cases, and more broadly, he uh, joined the liberals something like four times in the past year and a half yeah. in five to four cases. He'd done that uh, only four times in the previous 10 years. So obviously he is changing his conception of his role now that he is the median justice with Justice Kennedy's retirement. What do you think Chief Justice Roberts' vision of the institutional legitimacy of the court is and how is it manifest not only in the census and gerrymandering cases but in other cases this term? Sure, and thanks to you all for being here. I'm glad to join everyone on stage. Let me bring you into the courtroom yesterday because it was so dramatic especially given that the chief had both of these big rulings. This doesn't often happen. Mm -hmm. He has the assignment power, so he chose to keep both of these to himself. And first he gives this long rendition on something that is very personal to him. 
the partisan gerrymandering project that he has for for years, ever since he became chief and even before, felt like this was an area that judges should not be part of. And he went on for about eight minutes explaining essentially the culmination of the dream he has had on this, which I think is the more significant thing of yesterday's business because it will, you know, it will end all these challenges that have been going on nationwide to extreme line drawing that entrenches the party that controls the state house in power. And then Elena Kagan gave this mournful almost dissent. She went on for twice as long talking about democracy. As, as you said, Jeff, quoting the Declaration of Independence, quoting, quoting fundamental principles. So there was this pall in the room for this moment. And then we had you know, a few other, few other items of business. And then the chief says that he has the census case. And you know, because I have studied this man for so long, I know that he does not want to send the same signal all the time. And I thought, he's just reversed the precedent from uh, 1986. He's just gone against where Anthony Kennedy had left the door open for partisan gerrymanders. What is he going to do on census? Is he going to send us two very strong, potentially, potentially, Ted, partisan signals? Uh, What will he do? And believe it or not, for the first two-thirds of his reading, it was all about why Wilbur Ross could do this. Mm-hmm. So, you know, everyone down in the press room is already paging through this thing. He didn't get until, it was until page 23 that he started to say what was wrong here. So first he says, under the enumeration clause, this is okay. Under the Administrative Procedures Act, this is okay. He's just swatting away all of the challenger's arguments. And I'm thinking, I actually am thinking more about him than the census at this moment, because I'm thinking... What is he doing? Mm -hmm. And then it was almost a sort of a, by the way, and his voice is much lower at this point than it was in his sort of commanding presence on the gerrymandering decision. And and he essentially said, we are not going to be duped. Mm -hmm. And you can lie to a lot of people out there, but don't go lying to judges. You know, uh, I think all of us understand that this is a man who really believes in the integrity of the judiciary. And he was... You know, there was some dispute among uh, those of us who covered the court closely how much he was going to look beyond the record. And what he did was he looked carefully at the record that Judge Furman had developed and the kinds of statements that had been made in subsequent memos um, to the lower court by the administration. And he said, you went and told us that the sole reason you were doing this was for the Voting Rights Act. He essentially said, if you hadn't done that, we'd be with you. But you went and did this. And it was, it was quite a moment. It was just a real strong moment. And nobody dissented on that side, although Clarence Thomas, almost invoking a line that has been used on Bush v. Gore, said, mm-hmm. what is this, one ticket for one ride only? Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the census case, because it was so narrowly written by the chief, even though it was a stronger statement. So to, to complete the thought on what do we make of Chief Justice John Roberts, he's not going to be boxed in, he's going to write his own rules, he's going to keep people guessing, and he's going to be in control. It's the first time in decades that we have had the individual at the center chair of the court also be at the ideological center of this bench and so interested in balancing his conservative priorities, like getting rid of uh, challenges to gerrymandering, with this institutional reputation. What a crucial point. The first time, I think since uh, Chief Justice 
Hughes that the chief has been both chief and swing secretary. And Hughes is a model for him, by the way. We're, don't you see how good this discussion is going to be tomorrow? Come back. <laughs> Come back for more. All right. Now we have to talk about uh, Justices uh, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. And this is their first term together on the court. And it's striking that uh, in how many cases they diverge. Uh, Justice Gorsuch joined the liberal justices in a series of criminal procedure cases. He had a remarkable lone dissent with Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg in a case involving double jeopardy and showed more of an originalist determination to overturn uh, government regulations. Justice Kavanaugh was more pragmatic. He joined the liberals in the Apple antitrust case. He joined the chief in refusing to hear abortion clinic cases, seeming to think that the court wasn't yet ready to hear them, and also showing more of a pro-prosecutor bent. So Emily, uh, with this broad question, compare and contrast Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and their impact on the court. Well, I think you see the striking contrast in criminal cases that you're talking about, where Gorsuch in some ways is picking up on a set of um, a strand of jurisprudence that Justice Scalia developed, which is to go back particularly to the role of the jury mm-hmm. in determining punishment and to be strict about making sure that jury um, deliberations and fact-finding back up um, someone's criminal sentence. And, and that's an important line of cases. It puts real limits on federal power. We are also seeing Gorsuch, however, take a very um, muscular approach to dismantling the administrative state. And what I mean by that, and I'm hoping Ted will step in because this gets like super wonky and a little complicated, but there has been really since um, the New Deal an understanding that the federal agencies have expanded in size a huge amount since earlier eras in our country's history, and that the way to sort of for them to do the business of creating regulations when Congress pass laws passes laws is for the people who write there who work in these agencies, the career professionals at the EPA, the FDA, they know how to do this. They can get into the details of the science and figure out the best way to implement what Congress does. That involves a lot of delegation of power from Congress to the executive branch. And traditionally, since the 40s, the courts have not entirely, but somewhat deferred to agency interpretations of congressional laws and of their own rules. What we saw this term in two important cases was Gorsuch really pushing back on this whole understanding of how we make rules in the country. He doesn't quite have a majority yet in what I think was, um, well, they're both important cases. In the first case, which is called Gundy, there was a kind of four, it it looked like five to three to uphold the traditional way of making rules, but it was really 4-1-4, where Justice Kavanaugh was not part of the deliberations, and Justice Alito joined the majority but made it clear in his concurrence that he is on board for this project of changing um, the scope and size and the way the administrative state works. So this is another sort of to-be-determined moment for the court, um, will there eventually be a five-justice majority, even soon, for really changing how how agencies make laws? And I know this feels like a sort of dry topic, but I think one thing to consider here is that if career professionals 
in the agencies don't make laws, who's really going to write them? Gorsuch has this very grand rhetoric about our liberty and how we want Congress to be really digging into these details. And that sounds great. I also think Congress should do all of those things and be more specific. But in reality, they're not staffed up to do that, right? We have many more people who work in federal agencies and know this stuff intimately than we do in congressional offices. And so the fear is that it's really lobbyists, in particular corporate lobbyists, who are going to be more and more writing the fine print for how our economy works, how we clean up our environment, all the ways in which the federal government affects our daily lives. That is a a powerful setup. As Ted prepares his uh, defense, I want to turn to Annette (laughs) Annette for history, because what I hear Emily saying is a really strong claim. And let me try to phrase it this way as a hypothesis. There have been three republics in American history, the founding republic, uh, the Reconstruction Republic mm-hmm. after the Civil War, and then the post-New Deal Progressive Republic, which vastly expanded the administrative state. Mm-hmm. Ever since the 1980s, conservatives led by President Ronald Reagan have tried to appoint justices who would overturn the Progressive New Deal administrative state and dramatically restrict the government's ability to pass regulations. Mm-hmm. Emily has suggested uh, that with maybe one more Supreme Court uh, vote, the justices would indeed be able to resurrect an originalist constitution, overturn the New Deal administrative state, and in that sense, Annette, might we have a new, a fourth republic, a new constitution? Is that what the stakes are? Well, it depends on how people respond to it. People say they don't like this state, but they actually benefit from it in lots of ways, and so we'll see what happens if they're actually successful. But I I heard a term yesterday that someone described Robert's court as redemption court, um, thinking of it in terms of what happened after Reconstruction wow. in the South and people trying to bring things back to the past. Hmm. Um, that would be a different way of, of thing, doing things, but it be, would be much more bringing back instead of going forward, re, sort of returning things to the 19th century or way, an understanding of law mm-hmm. and uh, its application to citizens. I'm not so sure... I think peop- that's popular with, with certain groups of people. I'm not really sure that the American people would really be on board with it if, for the very reasons that you're talking about, seeing a system ground to a halt or a system that's made entirely by people who are lobbyists who are writing laws and so forth for people. So that's the, the, the goal is to get us back. I don't, redemption court is pretty harsh, but that's, in thinking about his, his, the rulings on the voting rights case, gutting the Go- Voting Rights Act, and... Um, the cases yesterday, that this is something that's pretty retrograde that people see. Redemption court is very powerful words. Professor Henry Louis Gates' new book, The Stony Road, talks so powerfully about redemption, the Klan terrorist backlash against Reconstruction, mm-hmm. and to use that in this context is uh, powerful. Ted, this is a serious question. You have been an intellectual leader of efforts to persuade the court to resurrect some of the doctrines, such as the non-delegation doctrine that have been dormant since the post-New Deal administrative uh, uh, state. Uh, Should the Roberts Court resurrect these doctrines? And if it did, would we be in a new constitutional republic, and what would the world look like? Well, I think that we're going to... What this involves is what constitution we're talking about. When I joined the Justice Department in 1981 at the Office of Legal Counsel, uh, we started talking, I kept hearing things about the fourth branch of government, which was the administrative agencies. And I looked at this little paper constitution that I had, and I saw Article I 
was the legislative branch and Article II was the executive branch and Article III was the judicial branch. And I looked, I thought there was going to be an Article IV that would say <laughs> administrative agencies. It's not there. So the idea in, and this is not, this is a very oversimplification of it, but part of the idea of the creation of the administrative states, which antedated the Roosevelt administration, um, was that we needed people that were independent and not political making decisions about the allocation or the regulation of commerce, the allocation of broadcast networks and things like that. We put experts in administrative agencies so that they can use their expertise. They won't be political. They won't be responsive to the president. We'll restrict the president's removal power. And then there became, over the years, a proliferation of administrative agencies. President Roosevelt himself said the government was becoming too complicated for him to completely control. And I remember a quote from John Kennedy, who was responding to a question at a press conference. And he said, well, I agree with you, but I don't know if the administration will. (laughs) Now, part of this has to do with delegation by Congress, a broad, very broad sense of authorities, giving it to to the Federal Communications Commission to make decisions that are in public interest and convenience and necessity. I mean, just if you want to do that, that's a lot of authority, and that's repeated over and over again. So one of the questions is, is it part of the Constitution for Congress to uh, abdicate its responsibilities and turn it over to permanent administrative people that aren't really responsible to the president elected by the people. Secondly, the courts, and I'll make this short um, because I know our time is short, but part of it is then there's been developed various different doctrines um, named after various different cases in which they appeared where the courts have deferred to analysis, interpretation, and regulation produced by administrative agencies. And and that was one of the cases that was before the court. Another one was this Gundy case about how much authority can be delegated to the attorney general to decide what is a crime and when is it a crime. And the pushback against that by the conservatives is that we ought to put this power back in Congress to decide more specifically what agencies can do. And the president, the person elected, Article 2, should have more control over what those agencies do, and the judiciary shouldn't automatically delegate or defer to administrative decisions as to what the law is. And that is a pushback um, towards what the allocation of Articles 1, 2, and 3, and that there is no Article 4. Those Those individuals work in the executive branch making executive decisions. They shouldn't be making legislative decisions except in a very narrow sense, and the judiciary should do its job of interpreting what the law is, not defer to administrative agencies to make those kind of decisions. This Gundy case, and I'll say this, this was the first or the third case argued in the term, and they didn't get around to deciding it until the very end. It was 413 because Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. it was the first week, he didn't mm-hmm. participate, um, and the question is how much authority can Congress delegate to the Attorney General to decide what is a crime. And four justices said, well, that's, that's okay. That delegation of authority is okay under these circumstances. Three of the justices said, no, we've got to rein that back in 
as you pointed out, Justice Alito said, well, I'd go with the, the dissenters and say that this is not within Congress's authority, except I don't have the votes. When I have the votes, I'll come out the other way. Exactly. Now, you can count three plus one plus Kavanaugh. Yes. And now it's five. And so, and, and, and these other cases, which I don't have time to discuss, all talked about the deference uh, to administrative agencies and how far an agencies can go and how much the political branches, that is to say the president and the legislature, should be controlling what our laws are. That's very important uh, description. I hope you're all listening carefully. And you heard Ted make arguments that he's been making since the 80s, and which, as he just pointed out, the court is on the verge of accepting that would change the way government is allowed to regulate the economy, would make judges less deferential to administrative agencies. And uh, as Justice Kagan said in her dissenting opinion in this Gundy case, this would mean the end of government. That's what she said. <laughs> so just as the stakes were really high in the partisan gerrymandering case, so they're high here. There are principled visions on both sides. Neil, what I want you to do, and you did this so well, is explain to our friends as clearly as possible what the world would look like concretely if five justices or maybe even six justices embraced this vision of a originalist constitution, struck down the administrative state, made it harder for the Environmental Protection Agency to regulate, and so forth. Just take us down uh, 2021, how the world looks different if this constitutional vision is adopted. So I love Ted, but this is a really radical view. He's been pushing it since the 1980s. You mean Articles 1, 2, and 3 in the Constitution? (laughs) Well, well, Ted, ever since 1935, almost every justice who sat on the court has agreed the Constitution is supple enough to permit administrative agencies. And if this view is adopted, the Federal Reserve is unconstitutional, which Trump wants, you can tell. And imagine Trump would be running all of those questions. The FCC would be unconstitutional. The SEC would be unconstitutional. Inspectors general and all the agencies would be unconstitutional. Now, look, maybe you want, maybe there's some popular sentiment for that. I can't imagine that. But if there is, Fine, get Congress to pass a law to remove and defund and you know, disband whatever agency you don't want or the Fed. But the idea that it's unconstitutional, with all due respect to my friend, is utterly preposterous. Uh, and, and, and that's because when we, Congress sets up these agencies, they do so with checks and balances within the agencies themselves. They're subject to some presidential control and oversight at the end of the day, some judicial review, and absolutely our Constitution is supple enough to permit this. And, you know, we've been doing it since, you know, 1935 on and even before that and haven't seen some, you know, dangerous bogeyman except the corporate interests that, you know, don't want to have regulations. And the idea that Congress is going to do this Instead of these agencies, Congress is incapable of even figuring out what's National Turkey Day. I mean, the idea that, that you know, that they're going to go and debate the, you know, level of pollutants in, you know, whatever chemical, this or that. No, this is a project at the end, and I'm not saying Ted's motivation is that, but this is a project at the end that will result in the diminish, you know, the real dismantling of all regulations. And Justice Kagan's absolutely right in saying this would be the end of government. It is, uh, it's important that you understand these constitutional stakes. These are not just wonky technical cases, uh, and, and you can embrace either one of them based on your vision of which, uh, what the Constitution compels. Joan, much of whether this project succeeds, the project to resurrect what some have called the Constitution in exile, my friend Judge Doug Ginsburg said that in the 
uh, 90s and uh, imposed limits on government that have been dormant since the New Deal depends on a wonky doctrine known as stare decisis. And many of you know that term now from debates over Roe v. Wade's stare decisis, let the decision stand. The question is, under what circumstances do judges overturn precedents that they think are wrongly decided? And this term, we had uh, uh, the court announce the criteria for what uh, should count, including uh, whether the decision was originally wrong, how it fit into uh, similar decisions, whether people had come to rely on it, and how disruptive it would be to overturn it. At the same time, other justices, most notably Justice Thomas, rejected that test and said courts basically should overturn any decision they think was really seriously wrong. But it's complicated, and Joan, you wrote a really thoughtful piece laying out the different visions of stare decisis of the different justices, share those different visions with the audience and tell us what the stakes are for the future of American government. Sure. I just want to add one footnote to your first question, though, Jeff, about differences and similarities between Justices Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. And I think we're, you know, just to use it as a jumping off point, on dis, uh, dismantling of the administrative state, that is something they share. And that is something that Donald Trump, working with White House counsel Don McGahn, had a vision of when they were thinking of who would, they would put on the Supreme Court. And that's the kind of priority they had as opposed to who would overturn Roe, who would, you know, who would do this or that on certain cultural issues. This is where the rubber meets the road for the Trump administration and for those two appointees together, even though they differ on many other things. Precedent. Uh, it's, it was the watchword of the term. It came up in so many cases. And in part, that was sort of a, an extension of what happened on the last day of last term when the justices in the Janus ruling involving labor union dues reversed a precedent from the 1970s and, in the words of Justice Alito, began laying out certain, certain requirements for when will the court legitimately say this past decision is simply not working. The Chief Justice himself laid the groundwork for this during his 2005 confirmation hearings when, during questioning um, at several points, but mainly uh, in an exchange with um, then I forget. Then he was a Republican, Arlen Specter. Remember, he switched yeah, yeah. at the very end. Senator, uh, Senator, <laughs> Senator Arlen Specter asked him, "When is it justified to dismantle a precedent?" And the chief, uh, uh, John Roberts, went in about, you know, if it has been undermined through the years, if it has been chipped away at through subsequent rulings, <clears throat> its foundation will be shaken. And he has used that philosophy throughout. And I would say that. He, he's at the center of this, of how far to go, whereas he will always want to point to where the court previously uh, cast doubt on the validity of a precedent, where the court previously said it's not, it's not working, people aren't relying on it. So he's, he's about in the center. The liberal justices throughout this whole term kept talking about how bad it would be to reverse anything. They were... <clears throat> doing these very strong calls against it. I think, you know, they knew what was going on in conference. They knew how many things were at risk, and they had their eye, obviously, to the future. Uh, Justice Stephen Breyer, in a dissent in May, when the justices reversed another 1970s precedent in a California tax case, said, essentially, what will be next, and cited an abortion precedent, which, you know, it was right in the middle of when states were passing all sorts of new regulations uh, uh, 
on the abortion right and even some outright bans. So the, the liberal justices are trying to say, you know, not never, because if it was never, we wouldn't have had Brown v. Board of Education, but think very carefully on what you do. Justice Gorsuch has been with Clarence Thomas to an extent. Not, not totally. Clarence Thomas has been, you know, like, forget it. We, we don't want to use stare decisis as a crutch. Stare decisis has been something that these, the court has relied on to endorse rulings that should, have been, should never have occurred in the first place and, and been rejected. And I think what you have in the middle with Thomas and Gorsuch, essentially the chief and Justices Alito and Kavanaugh probably forming a little bit of a bulwark against a radical move to roll back everything, but still very interested in reversing certain liberal precedents. Well put. Uh, this relatively centrist conservative uh, block wanting to chip away but not cleanly overturn Justices Gorsuch and Thomas willing to overturn quickly. And the liberals crying again and again, what's next? And Kagan in that amazing line said, you know, we, we asked a few months ago what's next, now we know, you know. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and you know, she is such a pithy writer, and it was uh, in a ruling just a couple of days ago it, where she, again, had to dissent. She said, you know, we asked in May what's next. Well, that didn't take long. That's, you know, that yeah. was essentially her line, her line. But, you know, this is a very self-conscious court with Chief Justice Roberts at the center. He knows that we're talking about this. He knows that people are watching. So he's always trying to justify when they push hard. And that is part of his vision of protecting institutional legitimacy, which some justices, including Justice Ginsburg, uh, have said publicly makes her think that this court with this balance will not overturn Roe. That it might chip away at Roe, but it's not yet ready to overturn it. So Emily... You know, there were no big abortion cases this year at the court, but there was remarkable action in the states with Alabama and Georgia passing fetal life bills, declaring that life began at the moment of conception, which were designed to strike a stake into the heart of Roe v. Wade. Uh, Some of the court may take some abortion cases next year. You know, tell us about Roe and abortion, but not just that. Tell us, in addition to these administrative state cases, what are the liberals most afraid will be overturned? Well, I think one thing that's so important to think about here is whether there, what material difference is there really between overturning Roe and making it so impoverished that we lose access to abortion in much, in huge swaths of the country, right? So one way to think about the Roberts approach is that it is a stealth form of overturning precedent, where you hollow out um, protections, constitutional guarantees, so that they don't really help women anymore um, or help the groups that they were designed to protect. And the union case Joan was talking about is a really good example. So it took two or three decisions. They kind of put the breadcrumbs in place for making it much harder for unions to organize. Hmm, I wonder why conservative justices would want to make it harder for unions to organize and collect money. And once you have those breadcrumbs in place, then what you're doing seems um, more legitimate. You can cite a few cases along the way that you yourself put in place. And so I think when you look at the question of where the court is going more generally, the deep fear among liberals is that 
we have this conservative court, could get one more conservative justice if President Trump gets one more appointee, that is going to move right um, in a strong way that implicates all of these social compacts we've had in place since the New Deal or since the 60s or 70s, at the same time that the country demographically moves to the left. Mm -hmm. And that kind of pulling apart, we have not seen that kind of relationship between the body politic and the court in a really long time, since since FDR's era. And I think that helps explain why you're seeing Democratic candidates be open to reconstituting the court, because we don't know what the country will look like if the court is taking away rights or diminishing them at the same time that the country's political will moves in the opposite direction. You know, Maybe you all remember, I certainly do, an era in which it was conservatives who complained about activist judges, right? That was a bad word that we applied to liberals. Now we're having this moment where we're talking about the Supreme Court, nine unelected people dismantling the entire power of the federal government. That's a big, powerful move to the court to make. The same would be true of really um, changing how abortion works or some of these other protections. And I think all of that is potentially on the table. And if you're watching the court be sophisticated sophisticated about whether a, a, a move to, you know, take an abortion restriction, okay, yes, the headline will be that Roe wasn't overturned, but what will that really mean for access? Is it still diminished in a way that really threatens um, these constitutional protections that we've come to rely on? Thank you very much for that <clears throat> strong statement. You're quite right that uh, conservatives such as George Will, who is here on Monday, have openly embraced what's now called judicial engagement and called on the courts to Sounds strike... Sounds much better than activism. Than activism. Rebranded. But, but, um, and, and you've said that this would uh, set the court at odds with the country in a way that hasn't happened since FDR. We have f- f- six minutes left, so this is a short round for these final statements, but it's the same question that Emily has put on the table. And that, as you think to a Trump court, maybe with one more justice, um, we've talked about the administrative state uh, and Roe. What other... Um, issues do you think could look fundamentally different and do you anticipate a liberal backlash and what would that look like? Well, I think the thing to do, as was suggested yesterday after some of the opinions, is that people have to become more involved in the political side. Uh, I think one of the things that Democrats and people who consider themselves to be liberal or progressive have done is relied on the courts quite a bit. I have a feeling that the response will be grassroots organizing, local elections, state elections, state legislators, doing that kind of thing as a way of, of sort of countermanding or sort of pushing back against um, um, a court that is sort of in a culture war in a way, um, moving things backward, as I su- suggested before. So I think the backlash will be, will be more political activism and more local, state, grassroots, bread and butter kind of thing. State constitutions exist as well, and that's an arena for people to play in, and I think that we're going to see a lot more of that. Ted, you've heard uh, Emily mention the possibility of court packing. Uh, Annette, talk about uh, grassroots activism. If your constitutional vision is adopted by the court, which it might be, especially if uh, the president uh, wins re-election, uh, what, what do you say to those progressives who say this is an anti-democratic coup, this is judicial activism, and we're going to do anything we can to reverse it? Well... Packing the court, as the senators decided in the Roosevelt administration, was an idea that would backfire. Uh, and that it was a, a something that might feel good now. Mm-hmm. Put a six more justices on the court so that President Roosevelt can have 
a, a majority on the court. The senators rejected that um, and decided that was not a good thing. I would think that liberals or conservatives and conservatives would not want to start changing the court because if it can happen with one Congress and one president, it can happen with another Congress and another president. And there's been other proposals about limiting the tenure of justices and so forth. So we, we keep hearing about my vision um, of the administrative state and the court and so forth. I have to say that with great respect, I disagree with the characterizations that Neil threw out there. This is not eliminating the Federal Reserve. This is not eliminating administrative agencies. This is not eliminating the federal government. Believe me, the federal government is not going to go away. What this would do would be to tell Congress, don't when you're when you're legislating in areas of the environment or public safety or the safety of, of food or products, pharmaceuticals, be some specific. Do your job. Take take some thought about what you're regulating. Don't turn it over to somebody else just so you can vote for something that sounds good. You've got to take some responsibility here. That's what you've been elected for, not to just pass it on to someone else. And with respect to those agencies, this is not the idea with respect to making the giving the president some authority over the people that he appoints or his predecessor has appointed that is running these administrative agencies. That's the other person. You may not like Donald Trump, and I suspect no one in this room does, and I'm not saying that I'm advocating that, but the president of the United States, who is elected by the people, should take responsibility of the agencies that are part of the executive branch. And the judicial branch shouldn't just say, well, the administrative agency decided that this administrative rule means X, and therefore we won't even think about it. So the, it's, a, it's a matter of abdicating of responsibility by Congress, um, taking away responsibility from the elected president and abdicating responsibility by the judiciary. That is something that's so revolutionary, so radical, that that is exactly what the Constitution's framers decided. There would be a balance between the president and the legislative branch and the judiciary. If we move a little bit back towards that scheme, uh, instead of dispersing power to unelected people, that would not be a bad thing. And to the extent that a couple of these decisions have to do with state authority and the extent to which states have some powers left in the Constitution. That's also a part of what the framers decided was the right kind of government we should have. So this is not radical. This is what the framers of our Constitution intended our country's government to look like. We have just about one minute so for, for Neil and Joan. Brief closing arguments. Neil, you have been a strong advocate of the possibility of expanding the court if the Democrats take back the White House. Uh, tell us why it would be a good idea and what else you think Democrats should do to resist a, the possibility of a resurrected originalist constitution. I don't necessarily think court packing is a good idea. I just think the Democrats are going to embrace it if these notions are adopted. And look, these are radical. The idea that Congress is going to be specific, well, maybe in the world of Ursula Le Guin or something like that, but Congress is not able to be even general in passing legislation, let alone specific. Think about the myriad of thousands and millions of questions on pollutants or labor or campaigns or whatever. These are all things that have to be done by agencies because Congress can't get together uh, and, and agree with them. And if they, Congress doesn't, if, they, if the Supreme Court accepts his idea of the Constitution, then Congress doesn't, then there is no agency action whatsoever. It's a deregulated state. And even if Ted doesn't 
adopt this project. The project ultimately, and you can see it in the work he's doing, is, oh, there's no clause in the Constitution for administrative agencies. That's true. There's no clause in the Constitution for a Federal Reserve either. And there's no clause in the Constitution going back to the Bank of the United States in 1819. But ever since, Chief Justice Marshall, we've adopted a Constitution that is flexible enough to permit these things. And look, if you don't want to have the agencies, if you don't like them, fine. You know, defund them, pass laws in Congress. But don't let the courts do your dirty work for you. Joan, the last word to you, and it's an appropriate one. Why is Chief Justice Roberts so central in presiding over these two competing visions, the originalist and the progressive uh, New Deal Constitution, and how will his role play out over the next couple of years? Well, let me just tell you that this kind of conversation makes the chief shudder, the idea of court packing. When he issued that statement in November, which was an obvious rebuke to President Trump referring to that Obama judge who had ruled against him in an asylum case, and the chief said, we don't have Obama judges, we don't have Trump judges. I don't think that was just a statement to Donald Trump and the far right. That was a statement to everyone saying, the judiciary needs to be above all this. Don't let the judiciary play into these kinds of political debates. If he said it once, he said it a thousand times. The third branch is different. We are not like anyone else. And he's going to try to keep proving that and proving that. The difficulty is that that's not his only interest. So I think we're going to continue to see what we saw yesterday, this kind of weighing and balancing, him trying to figure out how, how much he can push, how much the country can, how, how much they can move this court further to the right. Because it is moving further to the right. But at the same time it's moving further to the right, John Roberts is inching a touch to the left. And I'll mention one last thing having to do with what everyone should watch for in abortion. The main case that's pending right now that could test all of this is something called June Medical Services out of Louisiana. It tests the same kind of uh, regulation on clinics and physicians that the justices in 2016 struck down from Texas with the key vote of Justice Anthony Kennedy Now, when this kind of regulation comes back, likely next term, it will be Chief Justice John Roberts deciding whether they reverse that precedent. Earlier this year, he was the key vote with the four liberals to block that Louisiana law from immediately taking effect. It wasn't a vote on the merits. On the merits, he could go the opposite and write some language about how this is not hurting Roe v. Wade, but we know that that is what's at stake down the road. For more on the chief and the future of the Constitution, same time, same place tomorrow morning. In the meantime, please join me in thanking our panelists. This conversation was presented by the Aspen Institute as part of the Aspen Ideas Festival. This episode was engineered by the team at Aspen and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 